And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I'm Pastor Scott. I'm excited to do a Bible study. How about you? Woo! So we're continuing in our teaching series, Certainty in a World of Doubt through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 11, verses 37 through 54 today. And guess what we get to talk about? Legalism. Ooh, kind of a touchy subject. So take out your Bibles. That is, if you have a real Bible. Yeah. ESV is the only legitimate Bible. It has to have gold pages on the edges. has to have leather binding. Or you're not a real Christian. That's legalistic, isn't it? So that's not true. <clears throat> so as we get started, I want to focus on two words. The first word is ignorance. And that's defined by being unaware because of the absence of relevant, relevant and necessary knowledge. So being ignorant is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you don't like people calling you ignorant, but it's just the absence of knowledge. And so you have the opportunity to move from the absence of knowledge to having knowledge to having understanding and eventually wisdom when you rightly apply it. But there's also the opportunity that if you have the answers right in front of you for a reasonable amount of time and you don't get it or you refuse to get it and then you move from ignorance to stupidity and foolishness and, and that's arrogance as well. And so our second word is arrogance. Arrogance is this uh, attitude of superiority and uh, presumptuous self-importance. And so why these two words as we get started here? It's because as we've studied through the book of Luke, we see this pattern of spiritual ignorance and religious arrogance. And um, so it's actually throughout scripture. And so I think legalism at its core is rooted in arrogance and ignorance. And the pattern that we see is mostly with the Pharisees, right? You see them, they're very arrogant chasing Jesus around, trying to catch him and doing something wrong and twist his words around. And um, so we see that in the pattern. But there's other things. Like, do you remember the sinful woman that she went to Jesus and she wiped his feet with her hair and her tears and kissed his feet? And what did Jesus do? He forgave her. And what did the Pharisees do? Well, if he were a prophet, then he would know what kind of person she was. So what do you suppose they were thinking? Do you think that if they really knew who Jesus was, that if, they, if he knew what kind of person she was, a sinner, and he actually did, and he forgave her, but that if, if, if they went according to what they were thinking, that he wouldn't forgiven her? And so they were really ignorant and arrogant, and they were moving quickly towards stupidity, weren't they? And so <clears throat> we also see in the disciples, they're followers of Jesus, they're arguing about who's the greatest among us, right? So there's some arrogance there. But then they humble themselves and, and they ask Jesus, you know, teach us to pray. So they're missing some information. Not a bad thing. And then there's the stormy boat ride. Do you remember that? Jesus is napping. But what you should understand is before that, right before that, they were off with Jesus and Jesus actually healed Peter's mother-in-law. And they brought many people before Jesus that were possessed by demons. And with a word, he cast them out. So it's this Jesus that they were in the boat with. And he was napping. And the storm comes. And, oh, Jesus, we're going to die. Don't you care? And so they're a little bit ignorant 
as well. And last week, uh, Ray taught us about uh, Jesus casting out demons, and there were two responses. One was, he cast them out by the power of Beelzebub. And then the other one re response was that, oh, that was impressive, so now show us a sign from heaven, as though casting out demons were not, were like some parlor trick or something like that. <clears throat> but it's kind of weird. We see this pattern throughout Scripture, but in this culture specifically, it's a highly religious culture, and whether they were God's chosen people, who, by the way, had a history of God's presence, his protection, and seeing his hand in their lives despite their disobedience. So whether they were God's chosen people or whether they were just hedonistic uh, uh, pagans, um, many of them were witnesses to Jesus. Jesus was a big deal in this culture. He was like headline news and people came for miles and days uh, just to be healed by him or touched by him or hear what he had to say. And uh, maybe even some of them were part of the 5,000 that Jesus fed with a couple of fishes and loaves. But nevertheless, a lot of them were witnesses of these miracles that Jesus did, casting out demons and healing the lame and the blind and the sick and even raising the dead. So what couldn't they see? I don't, I don't kind of get that. Um, but Jesus, over and over again, through tough love and through tender love, he continues to minister with scriptural truths and logic, bringing down the arrogant and educating the, in, uh, the ignorant. And soon, he would go to the cross and sacrifice himself for both. And so, as we're going to read on in these uh, verses, this is, not, this is not a friendly exchange. Jesus is kind of throwing it down and going fight club on these Pharisees. And this is not the kind of conversation that you want to have with Jesus. So, what, what does all this have to do with legalism? Well, we're going to find out. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, we need you so much. And we thank you that you're present here and... Uh, we love you and we're desperate for your truth. We're in constant awe of the mystery of your sovereign power and love and grace and mercy. We're so thankful for your long suffering with us. And we confess, Lord, that at some level and in some ways, big and small, that we're all guilty of religious arrogance at some time, even if it only lies in our hearts. And whether we're short-sighted or blind or stubborn, we don't always see what you want us to see even though it may be very obvious. So God, please open our eyes wide and our minds and our hearts to the treasures of your truth. The simplicity of your word leaves us without excuse and the depth of your word leaves us wanting more of this supernatural transformation and regeneration that comes through the gospel. And Lord, I have nothing to offer anybody here except for what you've given and I beg you to take me out of the way so that you, Lord, would have your way in each and every one of us through your spirit and through your word. And it is by your son's sacrifice and in his name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. And so turn to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 37 through 54. And it's titled, Woe to the Pharisees and Lawyers. And it's not like, Woe, Nelly. It's not that kind of woe. Now Jesus, uh, in the opinion of many here, uh, was a prophet. And when the prophets brought messages from God, they were either messages of woe or messages of weal. Messages of woe were bad news. Messages of weal were good news. So it's either good news or bad news or hardship or prosperity or curse or blessing or warning or encouragement. And this is definitely a warning, a woe message. So let's read. 
While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. And the Pharisees was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did, you not, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to the Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to the lawyers also, for you load people with burdens too hard to bear, and you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundations of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished before the between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered, hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is God's word for us today. So what was Jesus' concern, do you think? Well, it's our subject today. It's legalism. But you have to know that there is no New Testament Greek word for legalism or legalistic. But we use words in Christianity like Trinity that are true, and the Bible certainly informs us and helps us to find those words, and I hope that's what you'll see with legalism today. But legalism uh, is used inside the church and outside the church, and it's not a friendly term when people bring it up. And so we have to guard that legalism isn't happening inside the church, but we need to know how to answer those accusations of legalism outside the church as well. So we really better know what legalism is and what legalism isn't and what it is to mean to be legalistic. And so let's look at that right now. It is not legalistic to believe that one evidence of true salvation is a changed life. It's not legalistic to believe that or say that. Hebrews 12 speaks of God's loving discipline of his children. He says that he disciplines those he loves. Why does he do that? So that he gets, they get their act together and eventually earn God's love more and more by their acts of, of obedience? No, it doesn't work that way. It's so that we can show people that we're trusting God's loving discipline us and it's resulting in something. It's resulting in a changed life. It's resulting in a sanctified life. Hebrews 12, 11 says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields this, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's a changed life. 
And it goes on to say, therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So it seems to me that God's loving discipline changes our lives in a way that it heals our sin limp and it straightens out our crooked paths. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness which without, without which no one will see the Lord. So this holiness is that fruit of righteousness that, that comes through God's loving discipline. And so that's why it's not legalistic to say that evidence of salvation, one evidence is of a changed life. And I would say the longer that you're a Christian, there ought to be more evidence of a changed life uh, of your salvation because God is doing something supernatural in you. It's also not legalistic to say that a Christian, the Christian life is a life of obedience guided by commands. 1 John 2, 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. There's not really any missing information there, is there? It's also not legalistic to say that our aim is to please God by the way we live our lives as Christians. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. So it is our aim to please God. When? When we're just in public? No, it says when we're at home and away. So it's in public and in private. But I thought we were justified by faith alone. Isn't that true? Do you guys believe that? It is. But justification by faith alone does not exclude, exclude our aim to please God. It empowers our aim to please God. It's not a works righteousness. It is an intentional God-empowered righteousness that works and it pleases God. Why? It's because we're living according to his design of us. This is the way he wants us to live in a way that pleases him and the way that's righteous and it's good. And so that's not legalistic to say that. It is also not legalistic to say we are to use God's word to lovingly warn others, other professing Christians concerning their holiness. Do you guys believe that sin is a big deal? Do you believe eternally that it's a matter of life and death? It is. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So the idea is, is that we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. In fact, Matthew 5.30 gives a really uh, over-the-top way to handle sin. It says if your right hand causes you to sin, what does it say to do? Cut it off and throw it away. Yeah, but those are things that it says that I'm supposed to do with my sin, and that's nobody else's business. Well, that's not what God's word says. In Hebrews 3.13, it says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you know what this word exhort means? It means to urge, to press, to push, even to insist when we're giving loving warnings and encouragement to those around us that, are, that call themselves Christians. It's not judging them. You might say, well, I don't judge people. It's none of my business. Well, you're not judging them. You're actually loving them. And that pleases God. And it's also for your benefit too. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 3, 17 through 19. Now this is God speaking, so listen closely. 
Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, that's God's mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So you're not the judge. God is the judge. You don't set the standard. God sets the standard. And so he says, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give them no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked ways, why do you do that? In order to save his life, it's loving to warn someone, even if you have to push them in it, in order to save their life. So if you give them no warning, the wicked person shall die for his iniquities, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you do give him a warning and he still doesn't listen, he shall die for his iniquities, but you will have delivered your soul. So as for your benefit too, God wants to use us in ways that warn other people. So those are the things that are not legalistic to believe. And so what is it to be legalistic? So I want to first read to you what A.W. Tozer says legalism is. He says, the human heart is heretical by nature. Popular religious beliefs should be checked carefully against the word of God, for they are almost certainly wrong or become wrongly motivated. It has been a problem since the fall. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't mean since October. He says, legalism, for instance, is natural to the human heart. Grace in its true New Testament meaning is foreign to human reason, not because it is contrary to reason, but because it lies beyond it. Listen to this. The doctrine of grace had to be revealed. It could not have been discovered. What he means by that is God had to reveal grace according to his grace it couldn't be discovered by us who are sinful because we don't know what it means. We think that we can earn his grace or we think that we can, uh, we're not good enough to need his grace. And so Tozer goes on to say, the, the essence of legalism is self-atonement. The seeker tries to make himself acceptable to God by some act of restitution or by self-punishment or the feeling of regret. The desire to please God is certainly commendable, but the effort to please God by self-effort is not, for it assumes that sin once done may be undone, an assumption that is wholly false. <coughs> so that's what he says legalism is. So let's look at what, what it is to be legalistic from a biblical standpoint. <coughs> Excuse me. It is legalistic to be overly scrupulous about behaviors that are not exclusively prohibited or commanded in the Bible. Now, we do this in two ways. We can be completely liberal and say, anything goes, I have freedom in Christ. That's pretty dangerous. Or we can say, you never, ever do those things, or you always, always have to do those things in absolutes that are not commanded or ex explicitly prohibited in the Bible. So when we look at Romans 14, and we're talking about legalism, it talks about not forcing your convictions on others as though that you're the judge, like you're the spiritual police and you define the law. Or it talks about not causing others to stumble by shaming them into doing something or not doing something that violates their conscience in their service to the Lord. We do this in lots of ways by saying like, oh, you can watch any movie that you want. It doesn't matter. God loves you. He's forgiven you. <coughs> Well, that's pretty messed up if you think about some of the movies that you can watch. Or you can drink as much as you want or do anything that you want. You know, you have freedom in Christ. It's not up to anybody else. Well, if you're causing others to stumble around you that have issues with drinking, 
then that's not right. It's unbiblical to do that. Or if you guilt someone or shame someone into either doing something or not doing something that they do in reverence to the Lord, you know, it might not be commanded or, or, or restricted in the Bible to do so, but it's not unbiblical to do some of those things. It says when you do that or you cause someone to struggle, what you're doing is you're destroying the work of God in that person. You don't want to sit in that seat. The Bible's pretty clear about leading little ones astray. If you like uh, jewelry like millstones around your neck, you might want to think about doing that, but it's, it's dangerous stuff. And God's word certainly prohibits uh, and cautions us against those things. It's also legalistic to fail to see that the Old Testament Mosaic systems of law are not binding upon New Testament Christians. Now, don't get me wrong. There are things in the Old Testament that we are bound to as New Testament Christians, like the Ten Commandments. They're not the Ten Suggestions, right? And so... I'm talking about the mosaic systems of law. They're not binding on us. In fact, when Jesus came, he didn't come to obliterate uh, the law. He came to fulfill the law. He came to give us a new covenant. In uh, Romans 8, 13, or excuse me, Hebrews 8, 13 says that in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And so it's not legalistic to... Uh, think that we're bound to the old mosaic systems of law. This second one kind of goes along with it, and Ray talked a lot about it last week. It is legalistic to treat the law or any moral behavior as the grounds for God's full acceptance of you, and by the way, of anybody else. Romans 8.3 makes it clear of what the law cannot do because it's weakened by flesh. What this means is that we don't have what it takes to live up to the letter of the law. According to God's standard, you know, we might be able to uh, live up to one or two, or maybe one, or maybe a half a one. But God's standard of living according to the law is beginning at the first breath you take on this earth to the last breath you take on earth. You have to obey every single law that there is, and we don't have it, what it takes to do that. And it's arrogant and ignorant to think that you have anything to offer in your justification, your right standing before God. Yes, we're supposed to be obedient and sacrificial and thankful to our Lord and Savior, but never in a way that supposes that the blood of Christ was either not enough or isn't enough to make you justified before God. So that's what legalism is and is not. Let's look deeper into our uh, our scripture here today, and let's look at how Jesus addresses arrogance and ignorance. <clears throat> Verses 37 through 41. This is the account where the Pharisees are asking, uh, the Pharisee is asking Jesus to come dine with them. He says, relax, come recline at the table. Do you think he was offering a, a friendly hand of peace and, you know, friendship to Jesus? Well, we might give him the benefit of the doubt, but these guys were pretty slimy. And, and we see immediately when Jesus sits down, the Pharisees was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, he wasn't look at, looking at Jesus, his, you know, his sandals, his dirty feet, because he was walking through the feet. And, and look at your nails, Jesus. Go wash your hands before we eat. He wasn't saying that. Jesus is referred to later in this scripture as teacher. Another uh, word for teacher is rabbi. And so the rabbis, uh, according to the law, were supposed to do ceremonial cleansing, and they had to do it, do it in a particular way, using a particular vessel, and they couldn't use uh, a wash-up where everybody else washed because they might become unclean 
uh, by those unclean people. And sometimes these guys would even do this ceremonial cleansing between courses. I'm done with my salad. I need to go wash up again. It was kind of ridiculous, over the top. In fact, it was said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. Eee. A rabbi could be excommunicated if he didn't appropriately ceremonial cleanse. I even read of a, a, a rabbi who was imprisoned by Romans and that little bit of water that it gave him uh, in whatever hole they put him in to survive, instead of drinking it to survive, he used it for ceremonial cleansing to the point that he nearly died. And he was called a hero. So it was a really big deal to these guys, the ceremonial cleansing. But, but to what end? I'm pretty sure it was the wrong end. And so the Lord said to him, You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did he who made the outside also make the inside? He's talking about God, their creator. It says, but give his alms those things that are what? Those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. What's Jesus' point? Well, his point is, is that clean hands, absent of a clean heart, is not holiness. What is important? Those things that are within. God can deal with dirty hands. He cannot deal with a dirty heart. And so internal purity, holy matters of the heart, gives us something that we need for ourselves, but it also gives us something to offer those who need the gospel. It uses the word alms here. Alms, alms are gifts given to the poor for sustenance, but even more so those things that uh, the poor people need beyond sustenance is they need, they need holiness, they need love, they need justice. And this is what it was talking about. Now, how ridiculous would it be if I were to say, hey, we're going to Phoenix Rescue Mission after church today. Would you guys join me and go and, 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 and minister to these people? And we're going to tell them that God loves them and he's going to provide every need for them, but, but they have to wash their hands first. They have to be clean first. So we're going to teach them how to wash their hands and we're going to wash our hands. Then just maybe, maybe God will bless you. That would be so offensive to them, wouldn't it? But it would be more offensive to God because that's not what he says. God's continual love and mercy and grace and provision are cheapened if we are uh, called righteous by things like washing our hands. It's ridiculous. And that's why Jesus is so upset. He says, woe to the Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue and every herb. So these guys, if they had uh, uh, like an herb bush and it had 30 leaves on it, they'd go... One, two, three, that's 10%. I'm going to tithe this. And here's my stack of 100 seeds. I'm going to get 10 seeds for here. I'm going to tithe that. So that was kind of weird. But he says, <clears throat> you neglect, but instead, you neglected justice and the love of God. These you ought to have, ought to have done without neglecting the others. You love the best seats in the synagogues and the, and the greetings in the marketplace. Do you know what the best seats in the synagogue were? Now, we go to well, concerts and ball games and stuff, and we cheer, and we go, oh, we got front row seats. So you guys are sitting in the front row seats. Those are the best seats in the house. But that's not what it's talking about here. These best seats in the synagogues were beyond the front row, and they didn't face this way. They faced that way. And so how many of you guys want to turn your seats around and face that way to show everybody that you got it all together? <laughs> that's not a good place to sit. I don't want to sit there. And also in the marketplace, these guys were kind of like uh, 
you know, religious celebrities. And so can you imagine someone going up to them in the marketplaces, oh, nice to see you, and yes, nice to see you, nice to be seen. Kind of arrogant. And Jesus was getting down on them. So the point is, number two, doing the minimum required by the law does not make you just, nor do outward appearances that gain you attention make you loving. Those that Jesus that was rebuking were, were doing the, what the Levitical law required. So he wasn't getting on them for their little leaves and pile of seeds. He wasn't getting on them for their, being greedy with their money or their stuff. He was getting on them for being greedy and neglecting justice and love. The justice that they ought to have stood up for, for these people that were following them, and the love they ought to have shown them for, uh, you know, who they were and who God was. But you know what is truly amazing is to know that the pure sacrifice of Christ on the cross provided an unattainable justice for the unjust and an unconditional love for the unlovable. And that was certainly the Pharisees, but you know who else it is? It's every single one of us sitting in here. And that is amazing. So I want to take kind of a pit stop on the subject of justice. You know, sometimes we treat justice like it's a one-way street, right? We get up in the morning and we shrink our life to our own little sovereign kingdom, right? We have our own rules that we want people to please us and traffic to be right and, you know, God to give us everything we want and make things comfortable. And then someone violates our personal law, right? They make it inconvenient for us. They might cut us off on the street or at work. They might do something to take our glory or, or do whatever. And we walk around imagining, I'm going to... I'm going to cut that guy off. He cut me off. I hope that guy gets a ticket. Or at work, I'll show them. I'll show them. Or we might have even gotten ripped off in a criminal way. Or someone may have taken something from us. Or we see someone on the news that has done something seriously wrong or hideous or unjust. And we say things like, they had to lock that guy up and throw away the key. Or I hope that guy gets what's coming to him. You know what we all need to realize and get is that because of what Christ did on the cross, none of us will ever get what's coming to us. Because when the table is flipped and we're caught doing something unjust, even in the smallest ways or in the biggest ways, what do we want? We want mercy, right? Oh, justice is a one-way street. But that's wrong. But there's something so much more because God wants to make us, us followers of Jesus Christ, he wants to make us his instruments of mercy and love and justice to the rest of the world. Isaiah 117, I love it. It says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So notice what the first word there is. It says learn to do justice. Why would we have to learn something? Well, it's because we have some necessary and relevant information that we're missing. We're a little bit ignorant in our sinfulness of what actually doing good means. And it tells us here, it's a semicolon, not a comment, comma, that learning to do good is to learn to seek justice. So we need to correct the internal mechanism that tells us that justice is a one-way street to go, no, it applies to me too. We need to correct that in us. That's learning to do good. And we need to learn that we have oppressive attitudes within ourselves. 
And so when we can learn to do good and learn to correct justice in us and learn to correct oppression in us, then we can seek justice and correct oppression outside of us and be these instruments of God's love and mercy and justice. To do what? To bring justice to the fatherless. Who's that? That's people who don't have anybody of authority in their lives to love them and protect them and to teach them the right way to say, don't go that way, go this way. And also to do what? To uh, plead the cause of the widow. Who is that? That's people that are, who have, or have lost or they don't have anybody to stand up for them. And when we can learn to do that in God's mercy, when we can learn to do that, we can go out into the world and be these instruments. We can be different. We can be anomalies out there. And you know what? When you learn to do that, you're going to get intense joy from it. And people are going to go, wow, I was really hating on you, and here you're loving on me. What is going on? Why do you do that? And then we can make much of him and not much of us. And the point is that life change that comes through the gospel is not just to shine God's glory and goodness on your life, but to bring the glory, of, the glory to God and the hope of God's goodness to others. And so we need to know that the sacrifice of Christ is so pure that it pleases God for us all. That's glory. And the resurrection of Christ is so powerful that it can transform the worst of sinners like you and me. And it can give the neediest beggars like you and me a peace that surpasses all understanding and a hope that will endure any fear or failure that we have. And that's God's goodness. So why do you suppose Jesus was so upset with the Pharisees? This kind of stands out in Scripture. He doesn't treat everybody like this. Now, I'm sure he was troubled by the sin that was within them because God's trouble, God is troubled by the sin that's in all of us. We're his creation. But I think there's another reason why he was so upset with the Pharisees. What do you think that might be? It's because they were leaders. They were supposed to get it. But they flat out got it wrong, and they were arrogant about it. And not only for their, to their own demise, but to the demise of those that they were supposed to be leading to God. It says, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. What's this about? Well, in Numbers uh, chapter 19, verse 16, it says that if you touched a grave, you were ceremonially unclean for seven days. And so the Jews were really clear and careful to mark these, these graves with big white stones so that people would know exactly where they were and not walk over them unknowingly. So the point is, <clears throat> is that these religious leaders, they loved giving the impression that they were so spiritually holy, but actually they, they were spiritually dead, like unmarked graves in their arrogance. And so Jesus was saying this whole external religious act thing that you're putting on isn't for the good of others or for the glory of God. It's all about you. And as leaders full of greed and wickedness, you're spiritually dead in unmarked graves, and that's hidden by your facade of arrogance. And so you're defiling those that are following you. Why? Because you're too arrogant and they're too ignorant to see that works are dead apart from love and faith and reverence to God. And so as Christians, what we need to know that in the gospel that we preach and the way that we walk it out, we, are, we need to mark those graves of works righteousness super clear to everybody. 
the gospel teaches crystal clear that, that works alone are dead. But it doesn't say that works are unimportant. Remember we talked about pleasing God? Remember we talked about changed lives? So here's what we need to understand. Is that works are not a means to salvation. Works are not a means to salvation. They are an expression of salvation. And we need to understand that. So now in our story, we come to the next character. The lawyer. And he should have kept his mouth shut. Because, I mean, it's really interesting the way the scripture puts it. It says that he answered Jesus. Well, I don't see Jesus asking many questions here. Do you? I mean, he asked a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. So can you imagine? Jesus is rebuking and giving it to the Pharisees. And this guy says, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. So Jesus has given it to the Pharisees. And he says this. Really? You want some of this? And so Jesus gives it right to him. So you have to understand that lawyers in this culture weren't so much lawyers who represented clients, although they, they did in some cases, but more so they were represent, rep, represented the Mosaic law. They were lawyers who were experts on Old Testament law and how it applied. And because of the side that their bread was buttered on, they often applied heavy burdens to people by the way they interpreted the Mosaic Law, and it was often very self-serving or for control or oppression. And so the point, number four, is legalism is often hypocritical, placing ex excessive expectations upon others that you have no intention on burdening yourself with and have no intention on helping others with or both. For example... There is one Old Testament uh, Mosaic law that said on the Sabbath, a man could not carry something in his right hand or in his left hand or across his chest or his shoulder, but he could carry something on the back of his hand or on his foot or with his elbow or in his ear or your hair, or in the hem of your shirt, or in your shoe, or in your sandal. Can you imagine? Can you imagine walking around church on the Sabbath? Hey, Bill. <laughs> hey, Bob. <laughs> and then Jim walks along and says, hey, what, what's up with you guys? Oh, it's the Sabbath. <laughs> it's silly. It's a huge, unrealistic burden. And Jesus was getting at their hypocrisy, saying, you did not lift one of your fingers to fulfill the laws that you guys preach. But there's some greater hypocrisy. He goes on to say, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Now these tombs that he's talking about wasn't like the cave with the rolled stone in front of it like they buried Jesus in. These were more like mausoleums, monuments to the prophets. It says, so you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. So to summarize all the way through verse 51, what Jesus was saying is that you memorialize these prophets. So obviously you have some reverence for them and if you have reverence for them, you have reverence for what they came to tell you Yet, you consented and were okay with killing these prophets who came 
to hold you accountable to the law that you say you believe in and live by. You can't have both, and their blood is on your hands. And by the way, they, they thought Jesus was a prophet too, so they were not only rejecting these prophets and killing them, they wanted to kill Jesus, and they were rejecting him too. And when we reject the prophets, we reject the God of the prophets and the message that they sent. And by the way, God was both. God is that God who sent the prophets, and Jesus is that truth that he sent them with. So here's the point. When we idolize the prophets, that's God's messengers, and not the God of the prophets, we miss the warnings, promises, and truth God sent them to proclaim, and so I think we miss God as the authority altogether. When he sends truth to us, it's good for us. So I, I want to I say a few things here, and I want you to hear my heart. I love the encouragement that I get and, and, and everybody gets when we come up here and teach. It's, it's wonderful and it's very encouraging and it really helps when we get up here to teach. <clears throat> and there's also a question that we get that's often asked way too often and on the phone and in person. And maybe some of you have asked the question, but a lot of you I, I, I get this uh, encouragement from and we get this encouragement from and it's wonderful. So... If this isn't you, I'm not talking to you, but if it's even crossed your minds, here's what I want you to know. And the question is, who's teaching this weekend? Or really the question is, is Ray here? <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I am a Ray Davis fan as a new believer, and even as a pastor, I'm highly impacted by him and what God has blessed him with and the talents that he has to teach God's word in spirit and in truth. I love Ray. It's huge in my life. But the question is still concerning. And it's not only concerning for me and, and other pastors when we hear it, but here's why it's concerning. that it's, It would break Ray's heart and it would break God's heart to know that anybody attends this church or any other church for that matter because of Ray or his teaching schedule. That's wrong. And so if you ever, that question ever crosses your mind, who's teaching? Here's who teaches every weekend. The creator and the sustainer of the universe through his word and his Holy Spirit through whoever he puts up here. Amen. Amen. I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because when I wrote this down, it occurred to me that whoever needs to hear this probably isn't here because they knew I was teaching. <laughs> so I hope they listen online. Or maybe you can tell him. So, let's get back to it. What is this from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah? Well, the first and the last prophetic figures to be killed marked the beginning and the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. So the first one to be killed was Abel, and the last one to be killed was Zechariah. But in knowing that, they were prophets. And so it not only records the events of their killing, but it records the messages that God sent them with. And so what we need to learn from this is that the hearts of men never change despite the generations of prophets that came with God's warnings, his promises, and his truths, right up to the last one, Zechariah, who was stoned by a king in a culture who didn't want to hear it. And if they didn't want to hear the prophets, they didn't want to hear the God of the prophets either. So has it really changed much in our day today? Why do you think there's so many unchurched people in our, in our society Things and kings have not changed much. And today they don't want to hear it either. But here's what's shocking. 
Amazingly, it appears that Zechariah says that he was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. He was killed at church. And I think that there's people across this nation who go to church for all the wrong reasons. They don't want to hear from God. They might want to appear holy or go just to feel good or to go hear half the gospel and not the whole gospel. Or they might even go and listen to a pastor and say, oh, you know, he was too convicting. I don't like him. I'm going to go to the next church. And then they hear it again, and they go to the next church and the next church. And they hop around until they get their ears tickled because that's what Scripture says, is that they want their ears to be tickled. But killing the prophets was murder, but it was not the worst crimes. These murdering kings and these Pharisees and the lawyers were committing a far worse crime than murder. Number six, this is an offense to God and a spiritual crime against yourself and others to take away the loving and redeeming warnings, promises, and truths of God. And that crime is committed both in arrogance and ignorance. These jokers were leading people away from God instead of to God. They weren't upset because God's law was broken. Oh, you've offended our God. No, they were irked at Jesus for calling them on a carpet and and interrupting their self-serving system of laws. Now, repentance is turning away from a bad thing and towards a good thing, right? But these guys were telling people and Jesus to turn towards them, not towards God. So here's another important word. Remember, we define arrogance and ignorance at the front side. Well, here's another word. Here's the definition. To change the inherent purpose or function of something. To change the inherent purpose or function of something. You know what that word is? To pervert. In our culture today, that word is gross. It means hideous things. But what was going on here was gross and hideous. And Jesus was calling them out for turning God's word and perverting it towards things that were not intended by God and for purposes not intended by God. They were perverting God's law and his purpose for it. It says, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. Their self-serving legalistic approach was taking away understanding and knowledge from people who desperately needed it. And when you give those who don't know any better a list of things that they can do to save themselves, you're not helping them. You're, not, you're giving them false hope. You're leading them away from God. You're leading them to a grave. And it is legalistic and gross and a terrible crime. It's leading people away from God's kingdom into another kingdom. Number seven, serving, self-serving legalism leads to oppression, the oppression of others. It is also the battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. These guys may have looked like they had it all put together, but Jesus was seeing their hearts and it was all about their sovereignty. I mentioned it earlier. We wake up in the morning and and we want to be sovereign. We want things to go our way and for us to be served. Even in our relationship with God, we give him our list and our prayers to say, I want this and I want that and please don't let this happen and don't let that happen. It's not bad to ask God for those things, but if it's the only thing that you ask God for, who's sovereign in that relationship? It's important. And so the world is full of self-sovereigns. And if everyone of us is self-sovereign, and I mean everybody on the planet, can you see why there is a global conflict of interest here? It's not going to work. 
Why do you think there's so much destruction and violence and corruption in this world? It's because of this problem that we have. And it angers God. And it should anger you. Does it anger you to look around and see what's going on in our society? It should. But what do we do with our anger? What did God do with his anger? What did he do with every bit of his wrath? He put it on his son. He put it on the cross. And so that's what we should do. We should do that with the sin that we have within us and the sin that we see outside of us. We should bring it to the cross. My heart should break in repentance for myself, for my own self-sovereign attitude, and intercession for others. What does God require? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That's what God wants, holy matters of the heart. We should be angry about the brokenness of the world outside of us, but our hearts should break for the lost, not be enraged by them or frustrated at them. We need to, we need to know what God shows us. What does God show us? On the cross, God shows us his restorative anger of love. His full anger and the full anger of man collided on the cross. And he showed us his restorative anger of love, his rescuing anger of mercy, and his sacrificial anger of justice. And that's the gospel. Yes, Jesus called them greedy and foolish and wicked, but we're not Jesus. We're not supposed to walk around with this religious arrogance or take God's word like it's our own personal two-edged sword and whack people's arms and legs and heads off with it. The gospel is healing, not punishing. Should we warn people? Yes. But don't give them any reason to say Christians are hypocrites or Christians are jerks or to say if you're supposed to be a representative of the God you're telling me that loves me. I don't want to have any to do, anything to do with that God. Don't ever do that. It's God's goodness that leads to repentance. We're supposed to pray for and love on our enemies. And our biggest part is to introduce people to the one that's changed our lives. And number nine is our job is to point people to Jesus with correction, warning, and encouragement, but always motivated with love motivated with love, and executed with complete patience. Love and patience does not come flowing out of us unconsciously, does it? Especially when we're being treated like aliens. Love and patience are not automatic or natural to our sinful nature, so Jesus has to do something supernatural in us. He must change our lives and our hearts, and when people see that, they want to know what's going on, and that's when we make mo much of him. 2 Timothy 2.24, what does it say? It says, and the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to people they like and able to give suggestions when it's comfortable, patiently enduring nice people. That's not what it says. It's not what it says. It says the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That takes something supernatural in us to do. And when we can believe that and do that and walk like that and love on people that, something happens. They see something in us that's not like the world. And something then begins to happen supernaturally in them. 
And what it is, it says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's supernatural. It's not about you. It's not about rules. It's about what God does in us to change our lives. Certainly not what the Pharisees were showing. 2 Peter 4, 2 through 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Provoke, rebuke, and exhort. There's that word exhort again. So what is this in season and out of season? In season is times of abundance and blessing. Out of season is times of little, maybe loss, maybe even devastating times. But it says nevertheless to preach the word with complete patience and teaching. It's really easy to tell people about Jesus and how good he is to us when things are going great for us and going the way you know, it's comfortable for us and, you know, we like it. But don't ever go up to someone who's going through a devastating time and say, hey, look at the car Jesus gave for me. Look at this nice house that we live in. If you could come up here where we are, maybe you wouldn't be going through such times. That's horrible. Horrible. So people need to know that the gospel works and God loves them when they need it the most and when they deserve it the least. That's what it means to preach the gospel. There ought to be a testimony on our lips in season and out of season that draws people away from the world and to the one who created it. It's dark out there, and it's getting darker. And it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. For the time is coming, I think it's already here. And it's going to get darker and darker and darker. It's hard to walk in the light when there's so much dark around us, but don't do it because the weather is nice on the mission field. We do it because Jesus loves us, and he showed it to us on the cross. We do it because he endured a darkness that we'll never have to endure We do it because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Do you believe that? Do you walk like that? Because the next point is, is our response to the arrogant and the ignorant and to God's word will reveal our motives, our truths, and our gospel. The Pharisees were certainly showing what their motives and truths and gospel were, and it wasn't what God intends. So here's how the account ends. They continue doing what they always do. They're trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus didn't put himself out there because they were nice or friendly. They were just fine, unrepentant in their own sin, thinking, sinful thinking in their habits, and Jesus was not being legalistic. He was giving them a warning, a firm rebuke for sure, but it was things about matters of life and death and love and justice, not just for the Pharisees, but we get to read about it in God's word today. It's for us too. Now there's a common reaction for, uh, by someone, uh, when someone corrects us. And it's not, oh, thank you so much. It's a counterattack. It's the fig leaf syndrome. We're naked and we're afraid and we're ashamed and we're trying to hide what we thought was hidden. But the leaf just is not big enough. Proverbs tells us that people who refuse correction do three things. They hate those that correct them. 
And then they don't listen to those that correct them. And then it says they despise their own souls. Love people enough to tell them the truth and to show them how Jesus created your life. Don't shy away from people because they hate you or don't listen to them to you. Love them gently with truth and pray for something supernatural to happen in them. And that thing is for them to despise their own souls. Because what I think that is, is that God awakening their conscience, that they would come to repentance and turn to Christ. It's a supernatural thing that happens and it's a wonderful thing and the best thing for them. Proverbs also says those who refuse correction are stupid and foolish. And when we shine the light of the gospel in a dark world, we can count on encountering people that are stupid and hard and stubborn. But don't get twisted up on people's condition. Just remember where they're headed without Christ. And to do that, you have to remember before Christ where you were headed. And that without Christ, you're just as broken and needy as they are. And then when they learn and they go, wow, where does that kind of love come from? You can tell them about Jesus and how he's changed your life. I used to be a hater and broken. And you can show them at the same time. Have you ever as a Christian uh, protected yourself with religious arrogance when you're confronted with some of your failings? I have. And it's because we were ashamed and we th I thought that uh, my failures were hidden. And I've forgotten some things. I've forgotten that my Redeemer lives. Don't forget that your Redeemer lives. Don't forget that your Redeemer gives you new mercies every morning. Don't forget that you need new mercies every morning. And don't forget that you've been ransomed by the blood of Christ and given a new spirit and a purified soul. I think we should pray. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 23 talks about this ransom life. It says, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. God, we thank you so much for your loving kindness. We thank you for your long suffering with us and for your never-ending grace. Through your spirit, help us to be mindful and of any level of religious arrogance that we have that plagues our minds and our hearts. And through your word, renew us to obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love that is marked by patience and humility and a heart broken for the loss. Remind us that every day that we don't need to perform for you, but that we are empowered to live in righteousness by you. Help us to be confident that although we can still lose our way, that you, our loving, passionate Father, are passionate to redirect us and continue to make us new so that others may see your power and love that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen.
Thank you so much. Love you guys a lot. Have a great weekend.